Shalom, shalom, friends. Thank you for joining us. It's great on this uh, Sunday of Adar to learn some Torah together. And as always in our uh, our social justice movement, we want to not only act, but we want to learn. We want the action to inform the learning and the learning to inform the action. And so this learning is a chance for us to get to the intellectual roots, the Torah roots towards the type of change we want to see in the world so it can spiritually nourish us intellectually challenge us. And we're here with our great friend, Rabbanit Sarah Tillinger Wolkenfeld, who is the Chief Learning Officer at Sepharia, an online database and interface for Jewish texts. Sarah is also a fellow at the David Hartman Center at the Hartman Institute of North America, and is a member of class six of the Wexner Field Fellowship. She writes about Jewish texts and Jewish law, and her current projects focus on applying Talmudic ideas to questions of advancements in digital technology. We will have the chance to, um, to learn um, and with Rabbanit Walkenfeld for the next 40, 45 minutes, and then open up the conversation for deeper engagement together. Welcome, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is so wonderful to be here. I'm such a big fan of Oriolet Sedek's work and have been for such a long time, as you know, Rabbi Shmueli. And uh, so I'm really honored to be here. And thank you so much, Eddie, for inviting me to be here today. Uh, as you all heard, I'm the Chief Learning Officer at Safaria. And so one of, the, one of the implications of that, I'm happy to answer questions about that later on. And if you don't know about Safaria, I hope you'll check it out at some point. But in brief, I'll say that it's an online library for Jewish texts. It's a digital home for the Jewish canon. And one of the pieces of my work is thinking actually a lot about ownership. And so that's the conversation that I want to open up with you today, that I'd like to think about with you from a ascetic perspective, from a social justice perspective, and particularly in light of the Shemitah year that we're currently experiencing. Or if you, like me, don't live in Israel, and I'm joining you today from Chicago, then you might actually feel that you're not really experiencing the Shemitah year at all, which is how I sometimes feel a little bit. I have lived in Israel during Shemitah years, and I see some nods, and it feels very different. Um, living in Chicago during a Shemitah year does not feel like quite the same experience. But again, because of my work with Safaria and because of the conversations that I have with people who learn and teach and write about Torah more generally, the possibilities of Shemitah feel very resonant for me, even in the cold of Chicago, even without a lot of agriculture surrounding me. And so I wanna share that with you and hear your thoughts. And ultimately I wanna talk about the relationship between ownership and Torah and creativity. So that's what I'm really interested in, in getting to. And I'm just gonna set it up for you a little bit. So I have a source sheet and I will put it into the chat. And if you click on that link, you should be able to access it. And for those who are listening, I'm sure there'll be a way to access the sources as well. Um, I'm not gonna share my screen for the whole time, but I will share it just for the beginning to give you a sense of where we're starting from. So the Torah describes Shemitah in a few different places, and I'm, I'm going to assume that it's a somewhat familiar concept for people, but I want to use these verses to kind of get us in the mood. Um, coming out of Shabbat, the seventh day of the week, it's a great time to discuss Shemitah, which is our seven-year cycle. So in the book of Exodus, the Torah says, 
ונתשתה ואכלו אביוני עמך, ויתרה מתוכה חיית השדה, כן תעשה לחרמך לזיתך. In the seventh year you have to let your land um, rest and lie fallow. And I'm adding here a little bit, but what does it mean that your land rests and lays fallow? Well, one of the implications apparently, or one component of that, is that the poor people will come and eat. Vietram and anything that they leave behind, the wild animals can eat. And so too with your vineyards and so too with your olive groves. Anything that you grow that you would normally harvest and, and bring to market or harvest and keep just for your family, all of those things are to be shared with anyone who comes and eats. It's like a permanent uh, installation or at least a one-year installation of a soup kitchen in what I imagine to be your backyard, but I guess fields can go out a lot further than your backyard can. Um, I think about this and I think about some of the articles that I read and the images that I saw of uh, communities that during the pandemic established um, refrigerators, open, open to all refrigerators in the middle of communities, even in the middle of urban communities, such as the one where I live. And I think it was it was just was such a captivating idea for me and such an interesting idea. And that's now the image that I have in my head when I read these psukim, that you have these um, open stores of food that are just there for anyone for the taking. Similar language, a little bit different, when Shemitah is described in the book of Vayikra, in the book of Leviticus, God speaks to Moshe at Har Sinai and says, when you get into the land, there's going to be a Sabbath for God. And I want you to hold on to the idea a little bit that the Sabbath is for God. Because um, there was no mention of God in the previous verse that we saw. That seemed to be really about feeding the needy. But this is something that has religious significance. And then we go on to hear again that for six years, you can work your field. For six years, you can do whatever you want with your land. But in the seventh year, it's a it's a Shabbat, it's a rest year for the land, and you're not gonna um, you're not gonna harvest, you're not gonna work your lands in any way. And then um, verse six, pasuk vav says, that the the food is going to be, or really the, literally the land is for you to eat and for your servants and your maidservants and anyone who works for you and anyone who's living among you. And then eventually we get to the animals also. So the food is not, um, it's in your land, but it's ultimately there for anyone who wishes to come eat uh, up to and including the beasts of the field. Um, and now I'm going to stop sharing my screen just so that I can see you and talk to you. And we're going to have time for questions at the end, but I would encourage those who are present to be active chat users as much as you want to, because the question that I have is fundamental. If we're going to understand what it means that in the Shemitah year, there's something about your ownership of the crops that's relinquished. It's not just for you. It's for everybody else also. Then we have to understand what is ownership to begin with. What does ownership allow you to do with resources that non-ownership doesn't allow you to do? So you're welcome to put ideas and thoughts in the chat if you have them. It's really, as I said, a core question that you have to ask before you can understand Shnita. So we heard some of the implications of a little bit of relinquishing ownership. Everyone's going to be able to eat from it. 
But what if you what if you exercise full ownership? Are you the only one who can eat from it? What are the implications of that? And I think it's an especially interesting question to ask ourselves. Um, well, maybe especially in a capitalist society, but I was going to say, I think especially if you've ever had young children or worked with young children and you watch children try to work out the rules of ownership. The word mine is one of the first words usually that a two or a three-year-old can say really clearly. And I remember thinking to myself when my oldest child hit that age, where did he even get that idea? How does he even know that there's such a thing as mine? And how does he know what the boundaries of that are? And I'm also interested, but I haven't, I haven't gone so far as to experiment. Thank God I have five children. I have not experimented with raising them each in a different kind of economic um, system. But I'm curious, what would happen to kids who are raised in different systems? Would they have a different concept of that idea of mine? So I'll leave that as an open question in case any of you have had that experience. You're welcome to put those ideas in the chat. But there's a few different things that seem to be fundamental to ownership. First of all, if you can own something, most fundamentally and relevant to the psukim that we saw, maybe you can prevent other people from using it. That I think is the toddler, it's mine. It's mine and it's not yours. And so I have it and you don't have it. And if that's the case, then my ownership is what prevents you from using it. And that's part of what's being undone in the Shemitah experience. Maybe also, if it's mine, I have the rights to change it in some ways. Um, I can decide that this field where I planted I know, wheat is actually going to be a barley field. I can decide that the orchard that was apples is going to be something else. Maybe only I have that power because I am the owner of this field or this whatever um, and changing it or even destroying it. Maybe I only um, can hold on to that power because it's mine and you don't have that power. And in fact, we can see this in other parts of the legal system. If I destroy something that's mine, okay, fine. If you destroy something that's mine, that's criminal, right? I can sue you for that um, or prosecute you for that. Um, so that's another aspect of ownership. Regina just added in the chat that maybe Shemitah reminds us that we're all borrowing our time on the earth. I think that's, uh, that's a, an interesting angle to think about that it makes us pull back from ownership and think about, well, what, what do we really own and what are we, let's say, merely borrowing? right? What's only ours temporarily. And then the other issue that these verses raise is maybe you can only benefit from or enjoy something if you own it. But there I'm going to pull back for a second and say, but maybe not. Because probably if I asked you all to unmute and say something that you've recently enjoyed that you didn't own, I'm thinking you could all come up with at least one or two examples and maybe even many examples. I just came back, I was telling Rav Shmuley before, before this class started, I just came back from a neighborhood park with my children. We don't own the local playgrounds. Um, it's the city of Chicago playgrounds. My children enjoy it regularly. I don't think that it uh, is in any way contingent on ownership. And yet, yet we're there, yet we're enjoying it. And so the even the model that's presented by Shemitah, um, right, I, I have the food, I own the food but I don't have sole ownership of the food. The ownership that I have over the food allows you to eat it also. That could be the case, even in a sense of retaining ownership, right? I could say, this is my food and also you're invited to eat it. This is my playground and also you're invited to come and play. 
but I would always have that sense of like, this is mine and I'm allowing you to do this. And so Shemitah pushes us to take one step back from that and say, no, 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 I really don't own this at all. And the next source that I've put on the sheet is a Rashi, a comment of Rashi's on Leviticus 25.6, on one of those psukim about Shemitah, that the Sabbath of the land will be food that's for you. Rashi says, You're forbidden from, from the fruit of the sabbatical year, but you're not forbidden from eating it, and you're not forbidden from getting benefit from it. You just can't act like the boss. You're not in charge of this food. And it's different to share. If you don't believe me, you can try this experience. It's different to share something when you own it versus when you don't own it. You feel differently about the sharing that you're doing. That's what Rashi is saying is the core experience of Shemitah. Rashi adds, everyone's equal. You and the people who work for you and the, um, the sojourners in the land. In other words, you'll approach this field, which the other six years is yours. You'll come upon this field and, and there'll be a kind of um, othering process. This field is yours the rest of the time. Maybe you even planted the produce that's growing right now, but this field is not yours in the same sense right now. And when you approach the field, you can take the stuff that's in it. That's totally fine. It's yours to eat. It's yours to enjoy, but it's also everybody else's. And it's that perspective shift that I think doesn't necessarily make a huge difference in the experience of, um, of the benefit that you get from ownership. In other words, if ownership meant I could eat the food before, so ownership still means I could eat the food now. I was hungry and then I came to the field and then I ate. Same experience whether I own it or not. But Again, I think anyone who's ever owned anything can understand that there's a perspective shift. You don't feel the same way about the stuff that you're taking if you feel that you own it versus if you feel that you don't own it. And really what Rash is introducing is not just that I don't own it, because that would be, um, I, could, I could relate to that, I think, in my mind. Um, you know, I don't own it, but maybe you own it. And I'm like comfortable taking from you because you're my neighbor and you're my friend. Um, but this is something even more, we, we all own it equally, or we all don't own it equally. And that is an experience that I think is maybe a little bit less present for most of us in our lives. The idea that this is something that's really fully shared in ownership. I have to think a little bit more about the experiences that allow me to relate to that. And Maimonides, the Rambam, also talks about this idea when he discusses the mitzvah to say the positive mitzvah of, of keeping the Shemitah year. And I, it's similar to Rashi, but I like his language also, um, quoting the verse. And then he says, Okay, you have to annul ownership of everything that comes out of the ground in the seventh year. And he quotes the verse. If you lock off your vineyard or your field on in the seventh year, then you've, you've given up the opportunity. You've um, left behind this positive mitzvah. And same if you gathered all your fruit into your house. You have to make everything hefker. You have to make everything um, 
equal onerless, really onerless. Um, and in that way, everybody can access it. Yad HaKol Shavin, everybody's hand is equal in accessing it. I just really like, I find that phrase really evocative. Anybody who reaches out to take that food, we look at their hand as being the same <laughs> in like the most literal level, because everyone has an equal right to that food. Um, I thank Alan for sending me an article in advance of today, a chapter from his book, really. Um, and it's not mostly what I'm going to focus on, but Alan, I'll just say that um, the idea that a lot of the language that, that halakha uses implies ownership, but you can't sort of get through halakhic literature if you don't have a concept of ownership. Um, I think that's really interesting. And this word hefker is, is one of them, that the, the fact that something can be ownerless, that that's like a state in halakha and a, and a unique state, right? Something you can point out that implies that the rest of the time things are owned. The rest of the time property is owned, much like the field in the Shemitah year, that the, um, the rest of the time you own it. During the Shemitah year, you don't totally own it. Um, in both cases, you can eat the food, but in this particular case, when you come to eat the food, you're the same as anyone else who comes to eat the food. There's another aspect, I think, of ownership that uh, I didn't name and nobody's named yet in the chat. And that's the question of identity. And I think it's certainly true. Maybe this is not as much the toddler with the toy, but as we get older and as we own more things, maybe that ownership can be a form of delineating our identity. And there's even one, after I, I started preparing these sources, um, I started sort of listening for words that imply that. And, you know, if you listen to the news, they'll talk about economic news, they'll talk about homeowners, right? Homeowners are a category of people. Um, so things that you own can kind of define who you are. And you could feel good about that. You could feel bad about that. You could feel neutral about that. But probably at some point in your life, you're going to come up against that. You're going to come up against this name for who you are based on the things that you own or the property that you own. I put a song on this sheet um, as an aside, Safari sheets are multimedia. So um, don't necessarily click on it now, um, or you can actually, if you want to hear that and not me for now. Um, but I did put, uh, I did embed a YouTube link on the sheet and you can listen to it after. And I put some of the lyrics. Uh, it's a song by the Israeli musician, Kobe Oz. Maybe some of you have heard of him and it's called Zalman. The whole theme of the song is, uh, or the story of the song is about a man named Zalman who goes through the world asking himself who he is. And each verse, each stanza has like a different mitzvah that Zalman keeps and like a bat kol situation, a heavenly voice comes out and kind of explains to Zalman that the way that he's self-defining doesn't work in the face of a particular mitzvah. So the stanza that I put on the sheet is about Shemitah. Um, where Zalman says to himself, who am I? I'm a, I'm a agricultural person. I'm a farmer. I have a big swath of land and I run it all. I am in charge and I grow produce and I'm, I take care of the land. And that's, that's me. I'm the one who's in charge of this plot of land. So really like definitional to self in this story or in this song is that he's the one in charge of the land. Nobody else is in charge of the land. And then um, 
then the bat kol comes, the heavenly voice from above comes and says, Zalman it's not, that's not really who you are because now it's a Shemitah year. And look, the field is blooming without you. You're not your land. You're just Zalman. And all of a sudden you have the sense of a person who uh, self-defines by, by their profession, by their land, their land is their profession. And you're told, oh no, but this year, that that's not going to work. You're not going to be able to introduce yourself and say, I'm a farmer of this really big swath of land because that's not who you are this year. You're someone else this year and you have to figure out who you are more at your core. And there's other things like Shabbat and things like that in the song. Um, I, I think it's a great song. I think it's really fun. I recommend it. And again, it raises this idea that aside from benefit from something, aside from control over something, the ability to change it or destroy it or do what you want with it. Um, there's this other component of ownership, which has to do with identity. And I think, um, I think it's maybe there are cases where it's easy to say like, well, that's, that's bad, right? That's a negative in some way. I think even that's part of the song, but I think it's also really natural that you would come to be known in some way by the things that you own. I don't think it's always necessarily an evil thing, uh, but it does raise questions. I think questions that um, this is, you know, a topic for a different shiur, and I'm sure that Rishmuli, um has given this shiur before, but, you know, I think it raises a lot of questions about, um, about climate change and natural disaster, right? What happens when the things that you that you think are, you own and are stable are suddenly destroyed. Unfortunately, we've seen too much of that in our world. And it is worth taking a second look at that aspect of ownership from a lot of different perspectives. Again, here my focus is really on the ownership piece per se, but I think it's a really interesting piece. So I've been really interested in these questions um, throughout the Shemitah year. And I read a book about ownership. Um, I guess, towards the beginning of the Shemitah, it was recommended to me towards the beginning of the Shemitah year. Um, it's not a Jewish book. It's called Mine, How the Hidden Rules of Ownership Control Our Lives. You can wave to me or put a note in the chat if you've read this book also. And I read it because I was, think I was thinking about a few different things. I was thinking about Shemitah and relinquishing ownership. I was thinking also of some of these halachic concepts of ownership and the 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 parts of the Gemara that I often teach, which are about things like how you acquire land and how you acquire other things. Um, and, um, and I thought that was really interesting. And I was also thinking more specifically about my day job, which has a lot to do with questions of ownership of Torah and copyright over Torah. And again, if you're not familiar with Safaria, a big part of Safaria's mission is putting texts into the creative commons so that anyone can use them. So just saying that as sort of background to understanding my interest in this book, I was really curious about uh, the developments of the concept of ownership throughout human history for all of these reasons. So these authors, and I put just a very short snippet from the text onto the source sheet, these authors talk about six in this section, they call them contested pathways to claiming ownership. And if I hadn't put this on the sheet and I asked you to guess the six ways that people can claim ownership, you actually would come up with, I think, all of these on your own. They're kind of intuitive. Again, just have to watch kids play on a playground and you'll get most of these. So one of them, for example, is first in time, right? That's the I got there first, or I picked it up first. By the way, it works in halakha too sometimes. It's not like a crazy idea. So I got there first is one. 
Possession is another one. Um, I, I physically have possession of it. Labor is another one. So I worked on this, very relevant for halachic sources, as well as in American law. Attachment, that it's attached to something that I own. Um, it's in some way draws on something that I own and I therefore own it. Self-ownership, the concept that I own myself and therefore there are things that I own as a result. And family, things that come from family ownership. So these, they claim are the, these are the tools of claiming ownership, no matter what society you look at and no matter in what time period, like this is what we've got in terms of claiming ownership. And what changes is the ways in which these rules are applied, right? Like which one takes precedence and things like that. And they talk about the challenge of mixing and matching this limited number of pathways and tools as we seek to address seemingly unsolvable dilemmas at the ownership frontier. The ownership frontier, as they use it here, is right, things that we're not yet sure about how to talk about owning. So new kinds of technology can raise new kinds of ownership. And we have to think about what does it mean to own those things? Which of these rules do we want to apply? To take an example that's like not new anymore, and therefore I feel comfortable talking about it because it happened a while ago and I'm like not so cutting edge. Um, it was a big thing that I remember. Someone will know exactly in what year when um, when there was Napster and there were all these ways to like listen to music online all of a sudden. You didn't have to like buy the CD because um, I think we had CDs then. And you could instead get these songs online, but then like somehow they forgot to think about slash didn't really forget, but preferred not to think about how are the artists going to really get royalties from this. And it was a whole ball of gum. Um, so but that's one example, a new technology coming and challenging the way we think about ownership. And again, what does it really mean to own something? How do I assert ownership something? And so the authors of this book write, it turns out that paying careful attention to how we make things mine, whether greenhouse gases or clickstream data, may be our best chance for saving the planet and preserving our freedom. It's a really interesting book, recommends it. Um, because again, they talk about all these different kinds of ownership and how you can change social and economic outcomes by changing the rules. And I think that's something the book does really well. I think what the book doesn't do so well is address cases that aren't a zero sum game. So it they talk a little bit about shared ownership, but it's really like a timeshare model. Um, almost like Alan, what you wrote in the chat that like, you know, in the Yovel, the land returns to its original owners. So it belonged to me for a while, now it belongs to you. We're in a timeshare, so I get to use the beach house for this month and you get to use it for that month. I think that's how textures work. Um, so that would be that would be like a shared ownership but a switching off kind of model. And I'm really interested in, in actually shared ownership because I think that Shemitah is a radical shake, shake up of the rules that get described in this book. When you pull back from ownership, all the materials that you need to create something new are suddenly available. It's not mine instead of yours or yours instead of mine. It's ours, it's available to all of us. And so we're gonna think about it differently. It's not me making use of my materials, which feels a certain way. I feel really entitled to do that. It's not me making use of your materials, which let's be honest, even when you give me permission, I feel a little less entitled to do that. I feel a little less empowered by that. And it's certainly not me looking around the world and saying, whose materials can I take from? It's a sense that these things are 
available to everyone. They're there to be used by everyone, in this case, to be eaten by everyone in the Shemitah case. And I think that gives us a really different sense of ownership. Most of us here on this call, I think, don't own farms, and I do not. So I'm going to pull back a little bit from that agricultural metaphor, because what I really want to talk about today is ownership over Torah. It's a really interesting question, I think. Who owns the Torah? Because we actually, as it turns out, have a lot of different ways of talking about it and thinking about it. It doesn't come up in the context of Shemitah per se, um, but it is kind of an interesting foil for some of the language around ownership that we do use and that we do hear when it comes to Shemitah. So to share my screen again for a moment, there's actually a lot of texts and probably you could brainstorm some of them pretty quickly, texts that refer to Torah as belonging um, to someone. I'll just say someone. And you can decide who you think the texts talk about Torah belonging to. Um, here's one from the Gemara in Kedushan, Lamed Bet. Rav Yosef Amar Afil Harav Shemachal Kvodo Kvodo Machul. Rav Yosef says that a, a rabbi can forgo one's honor and then it's it's forgotten, right? They can give up um, the kavod that's due to them. And there's a pasuk that's quoted about God that's used to prove that. Um, Rava says, okay, same thing basically, uh, like, or is it really the same thing with God? In that case, in the case of the verse that's quoted, the world belongs to God. Kind of like the field, with the field that belongs to you, only now it doesn't. The world belongs to God. Maybe it's a little bit like that. Um, but God can be mochel that if God wants to. Hacha Torah delayhi. But the Torah, um, here in this case, it's the Torah. Can the, can the, and the question, the implied question is, can the teacher really forgo that honor? And Rava says, actually, yes, um, because dichtiv uvatoratoya hegeyam, sorry, the, the end of the pasuk is uvatoratoya hegeyam amvalayla, um, but the English here brings the full pasuk. Kivatorat Hashem chavzo uvatoratoya hegeyam amvalayla, God, the, the Torah is, um, is simultaneously, I guess that's the best way to describe it, is sort of simultaneously both ours and God's. Um, that the Torah starts out as being God's, um, but then actually we learn the Torah um, and it becomes in some way ours. So we think the Torah stops being God's. Straight faces so far from the audience. Well, we have a lot of other texts that we use to talk about this on a pretty daily basis. For example, the blessing that we say over studying Torah, again, on a daily basis, we bless God, and God gave us God's Torah. Blessed are you, God, who gives the Torah. So Torah is a gift, but somehow it's it's like literally the gift that keeps on giving. Right? It's a gift that we're receiving day after day after day. It doesn't seem that there is a single moment in time that we receive Torah. It's something that keeps on going throughout time. So Torah is both God's, or started out as God's, it's ours, but I would argue it never fully stops being God's Torah. It's God's and it's also ours. And by the way, whom among the people does it belong to? Presumably, I think it belongs to all of us. Um, and the, the Mishnah in Pirkei Avot 
famously the first Mishnah in Perkeavot, says Moshe Kibel Torah Sinai. Again, you have that, um, that metaphor, that image of a gift. Torah is given, is given to Moshe, right? Moshe receives it. And Moshe then gives it to Yoshua, and Yoshua gives it to the elders, and the elders give it to the Nevi'im. Um, I think it's like, a, right, it's a very physical image. I take it, I give it to you. You take it, you give it to the next person. Um, but we probably don't really think of Torah in such a physical way, and we probably don't really think of Torah as something that you can just give to the next person without still having it yourself. It's not something you have to give away in order to give. Susan asked in the chat what it means to forgo one's honor. It just means that you don't hold people to the same standards in terms of, um, let's say, standing up for you when you come into a room or something like that. Um, you can say, you know, it's really okay if they don't do that. Um, that's the idea. And, and so that's the, the sort of premise for this question is, you know, God forgoing one's honor, but um, but again, really where the text goes is this idea, kim Hashem that people desire God's Torah, and, and they meditate in their own Torah, right? Again, this process of acquisition. So it kind of moves a little farther afield from honor and starts talking just about Torah. If Torah is something that's meant to be shared, again, I think it's shared in a lot of different directions. It's shared between people and God. It never stops being God's, even as it becomes ours. And it's also shared among people. And again, this is kind of the model of ownership that I was looking for in reading this book about rules of ownership and not really finding. And I don't think that it would be correct entirely to say that there are no rules of ownership around Torah. I think, and this is the work that, this is like part two of this year. We can do this a different time. I think it'd be a really interesting question to talk about and and something that comes up in the sources to think about when when does the Gemara talk in the terms of ownership of Torah right? what does it take to own a piece of Torah or to own a Torah idea um, or to have ownership over Torah I think that's a really interesting question but I keep coming back to this idea that even if you have some sort of ownership over Torah even if you've kind of taken it inside of you again there's like there's, there's Shefa there, there's bounty, there's always more that can be shared. It's not going to be mine and mine alone. And so again, I think about this a lot in the work that I do. I think about it a lot in terms of what it means for people to relinquish rights to Torah that they've created, or really to put it more accurately, to share those rights with others. And the next text that I put on the sheet is about what's called Creative Commons licenses. Those are the licenses that I work with um, most at Safaria. And it's, it's actually, I think I linked to it here. It's, there's an amazing website that's like very, very detailed in terms of what a Creative Commons license is and how they came about. I gave you the brief version here. Essentially, copyright grants a set of exclusive rights to a creator so that the creator has the ability to prevent others from copying and adapting her work for a limited time. So just think about that for a second in terms of the psukim that we started with. The ownership that you have through copyright, what does that ownership give you? You have exclusive rights because you created it. By the way, it's a whole other conversation we could have about God as creator. I have that sure also for a different time. Um, you have exclusive rights because you created it and it prevents others from copying your work 
or adapting your work for some amounts of time. So it's control. It's mine and it's not yours. I can use it and you can't use it, except you can use it maybe in certain limited ways that I set. Similar to the field, not in a Shemitah year, I think. It's like really mine. It's really mine. It's really not yours. Even if I give you permission to play this song on your radio station or um, quote this passage in your book or whatever it is, it really remains at its core very much mine. You're going to have to give me credit. You're only going to be able to use it in the ways that I told you you could use it. You're also not going to be able to do anything with it until you ask permission, right? There's not going to be any spur of the moment creativity with my work because you're not going to be able to touch it. You're not going to be able to adapt it until you ask my permission. And I can always say no. The creators of the of the Creative Commons licenses believe that the internet has given us so many more opportunities, so many more possibilities in terms of accessing, sharing, and collaborating that they invented this new set of copyrights. Remember that copyright happens automatically. When you create something, it's under copyright, whether whether you have that sense of mindness or not, whether you want to keep everyone else at arm's length or not, that's what happens automatically. And Creative Commons licenses are, are designed as ways for people to set more specifically what it is that they do or don't want other people to be able to do with their work. And again, when I read this, it's so reminiscent to me of the language that Rashi uses around Shemitah, um, or that Rambam uses around Shemitah, Yad HaKol Shavimba, that everyone's hand is going to have an equal, equal ability to reach it. That's not every Creative Commons license. There's different kinds of Creative Commons licenses. You can have a more protective one or a less protective one. But fundamentally, the idea is that as I'm creating, as I'm asserting my ownership over something, there's some kind of what I would call a havamina. There's some kind of thought from the beginning oh yeah, like I might want other people to benefit from this in a fuller way and might want other people to be able to create based on this. I might want other people to be able to take this and run with it. And so I'm going to allow for that possibility. And I see something really resonant here in terms of the idea of Torah as a whole, this idea that Torah is a gift that God has given us. But again, it remains, it's still God's. I think it's still God's Torah, but it's also our Torah in some really complicated way. Um, I find that really resonant with this idea of licenses that allow people to do more things with the things that are created in the world. And so to, to wrap up, and then I'm really curious to hear your thoughts and comments and questions, I wanna just name a few things that I think are special about the shared qualities of Torah. Two pieces from the Gemara that I think speak to this, this kind of abundance, this kind of um, broadness where Torah is something that can be simultaneously owned and simultaneously um, able for multiple people to derive benefit. Um, I think that's, that's a really powerful idea. And I'll be curious to hear from all of you how you think we can bring that into our Shemitah year experience. So I think there's actually a lot of Gemaras about this, but I'm just going to share two with you. And I'm sharing my screen again. Uh, the first is from the Gemara in Sanhedrin, which talks about, well, it's not, the context is actually not so important here. I'm gonna focus on the verse that is, uh, that is being explicated. Um, so there's a verse in Yermiyahu, Kepatichi Putset Sela, 
that uh, it's like a like a hammer that explodes a rock. Um, speaking about the strength of God um, and the drasha, the midrashic explanation here is um, just as this, the hammer striking the rock can cause lots of sparks to fly or lots of little pieces of rock to fly out. So too, one verse can, can mean multiple things. That's, that's a fundamental fact about Torah, that it can have multiple meanings, that it can have multiple implications that we ascribe to the fact that it is divine. In other words, human speech is, is, more, is more simplistic. It's, it's more easily reduced to one meaning or a smaller set of meanings. And in some sense, the meaning of any verse is infinite because that's what it is when God speaks. If the meaning of any verse is infinite, there's really no end to the number of meanings that it can have, then kind of makes sense why shared ownership would be a reasonable model because we're not all interested in the same meanings of the verse. You're interested in one meaning and I'm interested in a different meaning. And we can all have our kind of piece of this explosive word. We can all have our aspect of it. And furthermore, I think that to, to take the, the analogy of the hammer and the rock even a little bit further than the Gemara does, um, those rocks fly in lots of pieces. Uh, they fly in all directions. And part of our job is to gather them up and to name them and to hold on to them in the world. And without a sense of shared ownership, without a sense of shared responsibility, which I also want to say is a part of ownership, um, I feel responsible for this because it's mine. It's not just yours. If the Torah is just yours or the Torah is just God's, then I can kind of float in and out of the experience. But if we own it um, in partnership, if we all own it together, then I have some responsibility for it. And I have some responsibility for gathering up those mitzotot. One other idea from the Gemara, and this might be now my favorite, my favorite sugi, although it's always hard to pick a specific favorite, but, um, but I think this is definitely one of the, one of the most misunderstood sugiot in the Gemara. Um, this is a piece from the Gemara in Chagiga. And so we just passed it in Dafyomi not that long ago. And it's, a, it's an extended story. I didn't give you the whole thing here, but basically, um, two um, rabbis, Rabbi Elazar ben Chisma, who go to greet their rabbi. They go to greet their rabbi, who's Rabbi Yeshua. And when they get to their rabbi, he asks them, Basically, he says, what did you learn in school today? And they say, and you don't have to have read this Gemara to know what they say, because if you've ever spoken to children after school, you know what they say. They say nothing. We learned nothing, which is exactly what you want to hear when you're paying day school tuition. They say we learn nothing. Um, and But he, like any good parents, and he's their teacher, is not satisfied. Um, okay, really what they say is, right? we're your students and we drink from your water, which means we couldn't possibly have learned anything that you didn't teach us. But he's like, okay, that's nice. Now tell me what you want. Um, and what he actually says is, it's impossible for there to be a Beit Midrash without a Chidush. This is the famous part of this Gemara. This is what gets quoted the most. A lot of people would stop the story here. But I don't think that's the, that's the great part. That's a good part of the story. But I don't think that's a great part of the story. The great part is that he slowly, slowly goes on to convince them to tell him what they learned in school. 
and eventually they come out with it and okay it's like a whole thing whatever um i mean it's interesting um but at the end of the day um rabbi yeshua has the last word amarlahem he says to them you had this great pearl. It's right. The idiom translates well, you, like a pearl of wisdom. You had this great pearl of wisdom in your hands and you wanted to hide it from me. You wanted, you wanted me to lose it because you had it and I didn't have it. And I'm struck again by the ownership language in that text that it, it resonates for me with that, um, Torah is something that you give. You give from one person to the next. It's something that can be given and passed on. And when we don't give it, when we withhold it, kind of like preventing Torah from, from reaching its destiny or from achieving its potential in some way. And I think that that is the, the part of the Shemitah year that, again, for me, living in Chicago, not a lot of agriculture, um, not a lot of resonance there. That's the part that really resonates with me, that there's, there is this model that we have of shared ownership in our tradition, where we share it with the divine, we share it with each other. It's not just in the Shemitah year, it's all the time. And the question is, what do we wanna do with that shared ownership? What, what implication do we want that to have in our lives? What does it look like to pass the Torah on and still possess it? What does it look like for us to possess a Torah that also simultaneously belongs to God? I have thoughts, but I really want to open it up for discussion and conversation now. Um, so thank you all. And I hope that we'll get some comments and questions. Amazing. Amazing. So much to think about here. Thank you so much for this awesome sheer. So friends, feel free to unmute yourselves. We would love to hear your questions for Rabbi Sarah Welkenfeld. quiet group, but I'm pretty patient. Uh, I don't know if it's exactly a, a question, but something that's made me think of what you're saying in terms of the shared ownership, um, and something I think is, I think is from Rabbi Herzog, which is um, you can, one can imagine different kinds of partnership or shared ownership. So for example, say you have multiple owners of a, of a field or a flock of sheep, there are different ways to imagine that, like each owner could own a certain number of sheep, maybe whether, whether they know which ones or not, or maybe each one owns a, you know, a portion of each sheep or a percentage of the whole flock. I mean, there are different ways to imagine sharing that. I'm not sure which one of those you know, would be the best metaphor for Torah, probably something that spreads the ownership so it's not so divisible, but I'm not sure. Yeah. I think that's right. I think that's what I was struggling with, as I mentioned in this book, that, that I, think, I think that when we talk about owning property, yeah, there's a way in which we want to divide it by time or by portion in some way so that you can measure it. And that makes sense to me. And when it comes to Torah, we maybe don't necessarily want to divide it that way. Um, but sometimes we do, right? There's ownership over works of Torah. There's ownership over books of Torah. And again, it's sort of a, it's a complicated question, right? What does it mean that I own that piece of Torah? Or what does it mean to take a work of Torah that, um, you know, we believe to have been written a really, really long time ago by great rabbis or, you know, to have come from Mount Sinai and then 
to print it and put a copyright on it, right? Like, what does it mean to take a share of that in a way that wasn't possible before? I think that's like, it complicates like the sheep model. And so I agree with you that I kind of want something that's um, less easily divisible in a quantitative way. I apologize, I came late, so I don't know, you know if you were discussing this at all, but in terms of Shemitah year in Israel, um, you know, the actual Shemitah year, um, it seems like it's so, such a burden on people that it is, you know, that the land gets sold to non-Jews because it's just, you know, it's really, for people to give up a year's income, I mean, you know, I guess at some point, when they had more storage and things worked differently. So um, is that, am I right that it's really not very well observed because it's so difficult? I think people would say that it's well observed even if it's observed in the breach. And I guess we could, we could argue about that. Meaning you're right, I think that there's a lot of, there, there are workarounds. There are essentially workarounds in place um, and there have to be, there have to be workarounds so that people can still um, have an income and also keep the halakha of not in some technical sense, having ownership over their land. But I think it's for that reason um, that I was interested in exploring this idea more deeply, because even if you're in Israel for the year, and even if you observe, and there's multiple different ways to observe these laws um, in terms of the kind of produce that you buy, right? Kashrut gets a lot more complicated when you're in Israel during the Shemitah year. There's multiple different types of hechshers for produce, which anyway, if you're from America, the idea of hechsher, of needing a kashrut stamp on produce is weird. At least for me, it was weird. Um, and there's a proliferation of different kinds and you can decide how you want to observe it. But I think that there is a sense of Yes, I'm observing Shemitah and also I'm eating produce right, from the land. So it's a weird feeling. Um, again, Shemitah was meant to do that, was meant to have everybody come and eat. But in a modern, um, in a modern economy, in a capitalist economy, it's a little harder to figure out what that looks like. So I, I would say not so much that people don't observe it. They observe it in complicated ways. But I think that unless we find ways to take the ideas of Shemitah into our lives more broadly, it is a bit of a missed opportunity. Any last questions or comments? Yeah, Regina, go ahead. Just a comment to, to say thank you very much. <clears throat> Our shul uses the Sepharia um, Torah uh, as we daven on uh, through Zoom. And it's, uh, it's such a benefit to, to be able to read the Torah. And uh, I thank you very much for Sepharia. Not solely responsible, but I'm so glad that it's useful to you. And I think it's been a really interesting journey, um, both because of stories like yours about people, you know, hearing about people and communities who really benefit. But I also am always uh, kind of fascinated by the, the conversations on the other side. Like when I talk to somebody about their book or their source sheet and they tell me, you know, it's mine. And I really have these conversations a lot. They say it's mine or I own copyright or my family owns copyright, or I made this sheet. It's mine. And not challenging that I'm not there to challenge that. I'm just so curious always to talk to people about what exactly 
that means for them, for this Torah to be theirs? Like, is it yours and not someone else's? Is it yours and you also want it to be someone else's? And maybe I can help you with that. Um, because I think ultimately what a lot of people want is what you described, Regina, for, for many, many people to be able to read Torah and learn from Torah and benefit from it. So I think that's really a great story. I have one other one question, which I maybe think about what you said earlier about the idea of you know, seeing being hefker, being ownerless. And I'm wondering about the difference between ownerlessness and shared ownership. Um, and you know, are you saying that it's being able to think about ownerlessness helps us have a sense of shared ownership, or are they just completely different kinds of ideas? Yeah, it's a really good question. I have thought about it, and I think that um, I think that they're related ideas, actually, right? The I, again, so many more sources that could go on this sheet, um, but there is also an idea that the Torah was given in the desert um, because, right, in the midbar in the wilderness, in a place that was hefker, in a place that was ownerless, um, and so I do think that the two ideas are related. Again. I think that the question for me and Aaron, maybe this is what you're raising a little bit also with the mission in a vote. I think the question of ownerlessness is, um, to me, the question is, does that imply that I can walk away from it? So I'm not sure, right? Like that abdication of responsibility kind of ownerlessness. Um, and so maybe, maybe I'm working out this idea, but I think perhaps the idea that Torah was given in a place that is hefkar, that is ownerless, that was like a precondition. And ownerlessness is sometimes a precondition for a sense of shared ownership. But I'm not sure that I would say that it's, um, that it's the ideal. And yes, Aaron, I think that Midbar hefkar could be a place that cannot be owned, but right, same basic idea, right? That if you are, or to me, it's the same core idea that if you're operating in a space that cannot be owned, then you're saying something really different about what's given there. Just as um, works of Torah that are produced in different, um, different, I guess I would say copyright environments, right? Depending on when they were written and what copyright law takes hold, that really shapes like the history of the text going forward. I really see that in my everyday work. Um, and I'm so glad, I'm so grateful that Torah was given in that sense in a place that was Hefker um, because I it, it leads me back again and again to this core belief that Torah is ultimately meant to be owned by everyone. Time for one last question or comment. Aaron, I don't know if you wanted to say more about the, um, the Mishnah in our vote. I feel like I didn't maybe fully address that point. Um, sure. And I actually thought about putting that on the sheet, but I didn't. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot to talk about. Um, and I raise it because for me, these are the issues that kind of remain unresolved and, and I, that I think about a lot. Um, so it's really wonderful to hear somebody else who's thinking about these issues. I don't know really many other Jews that um, are thinking about these in this context and also sharing similar work, very, very similar work. We're, we're colleagues. We don't talk um, with each other enough about this. Hey, but you were on the other side of the screen when I, I gave a sheer on this 10 years ago. I have so, heard you speak about this topic. That is true. That was, um, and I apologize. You asked me to make a, 
a, a source sheet from my <laughs> LibreOffice document that I shared. Sounds like my I, MO. And I still haven't. Um, well, now we'll, now we'll hold you to it. Um, I agree. I think that these ideas are really complicated. And I, I do think, so the Mishnah and Avot, um, just to wrap up, because I know people have to go in a minute, the Mishnah and Avot talks about different character types expressed around, or um, defined around expressions of ownership. So ha'omer shali shali v'shalcha zomida benonid. It's like normal to say what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours. Um, but some say zomidat stom, that that's a sodomite characteristic. Shali shalcha v'shalcha shali am ha'aretz. If it's what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine, that's ignorance. Um, and it goes on from there. I, I think that um, I do take from there um, it's complicated Mishnah. Do you feel that what part of what this mission is affirming is some sense of ownership? Um, that that ownership is an important idea. And I feel that, Alan, I felt that also in reading again your chapter, that like it's not um, the question of what we do with ownership and what we should do with ownership and how we think about shared ownership is really important. But I don't feel that we're being told to relinquish the concept of ownership. And I think that the nuances in this mission are kind of pointing, like you have to think about it. You have to really think about how do you define ownership and what does it mean? And this mission challenges, challenges us to do that in a really complicated way, but other sources do too. So that's my like, I'll regal ahat um, on one foot quick response to this mission um, that I think is important. This has been so amazing, Yasha Koch, to think about this intersection of justice issues and um, and law and theology all together. So thank you so much for this. Um, and thank you all for participating. We will have the recording up uh, in a day or so. And we wish everyone continued bracha, v'hatzlacha, and especially simcha as we go into uh, Adar, the second Adar. Have a great night. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you all. Bye-bye. All the best.